Chapter Twenty Three of Middlemarch by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Margaret Espyot. Your horses of the sun, he said, and first-rate whip Apollo. Whate'er they be, I'll eat my head, but I will beat them hollow. Fred Vincy, as we have seen, had a debt on his mind and though no such immaterial burden could depress that buoyant-hearted young gentleman for many hours together there were circumstances connected with his debt which made the thought of it unusually importunate the creditor was mr bainbridge a horse-dealer of the neighborhood whose company was much sought in middlemarch by young men understood to be addicted to pleasure during the vacations Fred had naturally required more amusements than he had ready money for, and Mr. Bainbridge had been accommodating enough not only to trust him for the hire of the horses and the accidental expense of ruining a fine hunter, but also to make a small advance by which he might be able to meet some losses at billiards. The total debt was a hundred and sixty pounds. Bainbridge was in no alarm about his money, being sure that young Vincy had backers, but he had required something to show for it, and Fred had at first given him a bill with his own signature. Three months later he had renewed this bill with the signature of Caleb Garth. On both occasions Fred had felt confident that he should meet the bill himself, having ample funds at his disposal in his own hopefulness. You will hardly demand that his confidence should have a basis in external facts. Such confidence, we know, is something less coarse and materialistic. It is a comfortable disposition leading us to expect that the wisdom of providence or the folly of our friends, the mysteries of luck or the still greater mystery of our high individual value in the universe, will bring about agreeable issues, such as are consistent with our good taste and costume and our general preference for the best style of a thing. Fred felt sure that he should have a present from his uncle, that he should have a run of luck, that by dint of swapping he should gradually metamorphose a horse worth forty pounds into a horse that would fetch a hundred at any moment, judgment being always equivalent to an unspecified sum in hard cash. And, in any case, even supposing negations which only a morbid distrust could imagine, Fred had always, at that time, his father's pocket as a last resource, so that his assets of hopefulness had a sort of gorgeous superfluity about them. Of what might be the capacity of his father's pocket, Fred had only a vague notion. Was not trade elastic? And would not the deficiencies of one year be made up for by the surplus of another? The Vincys lived in an easy, profuse way, not with any new ostentation, but according to the family habits and traditions, so that the children had no standard of economy, and the elder ones retained some of their infantine notion that their father might pay for anything if he would. Mr. Vincy himself had expensive Middlemarch habits, spent money on coursing, on his cellar, and on dinner-giving, while Mamma had those running accounts with tradespeople which give a cheerful sense of getting everything one wants without any question of payment. But it was in the nature of fathers, Fred knew, to bully one about expenses. There was always a little storm over his extravagance if he had to disclose a debt, 
and Fred disliked bad weather within doors. He was too filial to be disrespectful to his father, and he bore the thunder with the certainty that it was transient. But in the meantime it was disagreeable to see his mother cry, and also to be obliged to look sulky instead of having fun. For Fred was so good-tempered that if he looked glum under scolding, it was chiefly for propriety's sake. The easier course, plainly, was to renew the bill with a friend's signature. Why not? With the superfluous securities of hope at his command, there was no reason why he should not have increased other people's liabilities to any extent. But for the fact that men whose names were good for anything were usually pessimists, indisposed to believe that the universal order of things would necessarily be agreeable to an agreeable young gentleman. With a favor to ask, we review our list of friends, do justice to their more amiable qualities, forgive their little offenses, and, concerning each in turn, try to arrive at the conclusion that he will be eager to oblige us, our own eagerness to be obliged being as communicable as other warmth. Still, there is always a certain number who are dismissed as but moderately eager until the others have refused, and it happened that Fred checked off all his friends but one, on the ground that applying to them would be disagreeable, being implicitly convinced that he at least, whatever might be maintained about mankind generally, had a right to be free from anything disagreeable. That he should ever fall into a thoroughly unpleasant position, wear trousers shrunk with washing, eat cold mutton, have to walk for want of a horse, or to duck under in any sort of way, was an absurdity irreconcilable with those cheerful intuitions implanted in him by nature. And Fred winced under the idea of being looked down upon as wanting funds for small debts. Thus it came to pass that the friend whom he chose to apply to was at once the poorest and the kindest, namely Caleb Garth. The Garths were very fond of Fred, as he was of them, for when he and Rosamond were little ones, and the Garths were better off, the slight connection between the two families through Mr. Featherstone's double marriage, the first to Mr. Garth's sister, and the second to Mrs. Vincy's, had led to an acquaintance which was carried on between the children rather than the parents. The children drank tea together out of their toy teacups, and spent whole days together in play. Mary was a little hoyden, and Fred at six years old thought her the nicest girl in the world, making her his wife with a brass ring which he had cut from an umbrella. Through all the stages of his education he had kept his affection for the Garths, and his habit of going to their house as a second home, though any intercourse between them and the elders of his family had long ceased. Even when Caleb Garth was prosperous, the Vincys were on condescending terms with him and his wife, for there were nice distinctions of rank in Middlemarch, and though old manufacturers could not any more than dukes be connected with none but equals, they were conscious of an inherent social superiority which was defined with great nicety in practice, though hardly expressible theoretically. Since then, Mr. Garth had failed in the building business, which he had unfortunately added to his other avocations of surveyor, valuer, and agent, had conducted that business for a time entirely for the benefit of his assignees, and had been living narrowly, 
exerting himself to the utmost that he might, after all, pay twenty shillings in the pound. He had now achieved this, and from all who did not think it a bad precedent, his honourable exertions had won him due esteem. But in no part of the world is genteel visiting founded on esteem, in the absence of suitable furniture and complete dinner service. Mrs. Vincy had never been at her ease with Mrs. Garth, and frequently spoke of her as a woman who had to work for her bread, meaning that Mrs. Garth had been a teacher before her marriage, in which case an intimacy with Lindley Murray and Mangnall's questions was something like a draper's discrimination of calico trademarks, or a courier's acquaintance with foreign countries. No woman who was better off needed that sort of thing. And since Mary had been keeping Mr. Featherstone's house, Mrs. Vincy's want of liking for the Garths had been converted into something more positive, by alarm lest Fred should engage himself to this plain girl, whose parents lived in such a small way. Fred, being aware of this, never spoke at home of his visits to Mrs. Garth, which had of late become more frequent, the increasing ardor of his affection for Mary inclining him the more towards those who belonged to her. Mr. Garth had a small office in town, and to this Fred went with his request. He obtained it without much difficulty, for a large amount of painful experience had not sufficed to make Caleb Garth cautious about his own affairs, or distrustful of his fellow-men, when they had not proved themselves untrustworthy. And he had the highest opinion of Fred, was sure the lad would turn out well, an open, affectionate fellow, with a good bottom to his character. You might trust him for anything. Such was Caleb's psychological argument. He was one of those rare men who are rigid to themselves and indulgent to others. He had a certain shame about his neighbor's errors, and never spoke of them willingly. Hence he was not likely to divert his mind from the best mode of hardening timber and other ingenious devices in order to preconceive those errors. If he had to blame any one, it was necessary for him to move all the papers within his reach, or describe various diagrams with his stick, or make calculations with the odd money in his pocket, before he could begin. And he would rather do other men's work than find fault with their doing. I fear he was a bad disciplinarian. When Fred stated the circumstances of his debt, his wish to meet it without troubling his father, and the certainty that the money would be forthcoming so as to cause no one any inconvenience, Caleb pushed his spectacles upward, listened, looked into his favorite's clear young eyes, and believed him, not distinguishing confidence about the future from veracity about the past, but he felt that it was an occasion for a friendly hint as to conduct, and that before giving his signature he must give a rather strong admonition. Accordingly, he took the paper and lowered his spectacles, measured the space at his command, reached his pen and examined it, dipped it in the ink and examined it again, then pushed the paper a little away from him, lifted up his spectacles again, showed a deepened depression in the outer angle of his bushy eyebrows, which gave his face a peculiar mildness. Pardon these details for once, 
you would have learned to love them if you had known Caleb Garth, and said in a comfortable tone, It was a misfortune, eh, that breaking the horse's knees? And then these exchanges. They don't answer when you have cute jockeys to deal with. You'll be wiser another time, my boy. Whereupon Caleb drew down his spectacles and proceeded to write his signature with the care which he always gave to that performance, for whatever he did in the way of business he did well. He contemplated the large, well-proportioned letters and final flourish, with his head a trifle on one side for an instant, then handed it to Fred, said good-bye, and returned forthwith to absorption in a plan for Sir James Chetham's new farm buildings. Either because his interest in this work thrust the incident of the signature from his memory, or for some reason of which Caleb was more conscious, Mrs. Garth remained ignorant of the affair. Since it occurred, a change had come over Fred's sky, which altered the view of the distance, and was the reason why his uncle Featherstone's present of money was of importance enough to make his color come and go, first with a too definite expectation, and afterwards with a proportionate disappointment. His failure in passing his examination had made his accumulation of college debts the more unpardonable by his father, and there had been an unprecedented storm at home. Mr. Vincy had sworn that if he had anything more of that sort to put up with, Fred should turn out and get his living how he could, and he had never quite recovered his good-humoured tone to his son who had especially enraged him by saying at this stage of things that he did not want to be a clergyman and would rather not go on with that. Fred was conscious that he would have been yet more severely dealt with if his family, as well as himself, had not secretly regarded him as Mr. Featherstone's heir. That old gentleman's pride in him and apparent fondness for him serving in the stead of more exemplary conduct just as when a youthful nobleman steals jewellery we call the act kleptomania speak of it with a philosophical smile and never think of his being sent to the house of correction as if he were a ragged boy who had stolen turnips in fact tacit expectations of what would be done for him by uncle featherstone determined the angle at which most people viewed fred vincy in middlemarch and in his own consciousness what Uncle Featherstone would do for him in an emergency, or what he would do simply as an incorporated luck, formed always an immeasurable depth of aerial perspective. But that present of bank-notes, once made, was measurable, and being applied to the amount of the debt, showed a deficit which had still to be filled up either by Fred's judgment or by luck in some other shape for that little episode of the alleged borrowing in which he had made his father the agent in getting the bulstrode certificate was a new reason against going to his father for money towards meeting his actual debt fred was keen enough to foresee that anger would confuse distinctions and that his denial of having borrowed expressly on the strength of his uncle's will would be taken as a falsehood he had gone to his father and told him one vexatious affair, and he had left another untold. In such cases, the complete revelation always produces the impression of a previous duplicity. 
Now Fred piqued himself on keeping clear of lies, and even fibs. He often shrugged his shoulders and made a significant grimace at what he called Rosamond's fibs. It is only brothers who can associate such ideas with a lovely girl. And rather than incur the accusation of falsehood, he would even incur some trouble and self-restraint. It was under strong inward pressure of this kind that Fred had taken the wise step of depositing the eighty pounds with his mother. It was a pity that he had not at once given them to Mr. Garth, but he meant to make the sum complete with another sixty, and, with a view to this, he had kept twenty pounds in his own pocket as a sort of seed-corn, which, planted by judgment and watered by luck, might yield more than threefold, a very poor rate of multiplication when the field is a young gentleman's infinite soul, with all the numerals at command. Fred was not a gambler. He had not that specific disease in which the suspension of the whole nervous energy on a chance or risk becomes as necessary as the dram to the drunkard. He had only the tendency to that diffusive form of gambling which has no alcoholic intensity, but is carried on with the healthiest child-fed blood, keeping up a joyous imaginative activity which fashions events according to desire, and having no fears about its own weather, only sees the advantage there must be to others in going aboard with it. Hopefulness has a pleasure in making a throw of any kind, because the prospect of success is certain, and only a more generous pleasure in offering as many as possible a share in the stake. Fred liked play, especially billiards, as he liked hunting or riding a steeplechase, and he only liked it the better because he wanted money and hoped to win. But the twenty pounds' worth of seed-corn had been planted in vain in the seductive green plot, all of it at least which had not been dispersed by the roadside, and Fred found himself close upon the term of payment, with no money at command beyond the eighty pounds which he had deposited with his mother. The broken-winded horse which he rode represented a present which had been made to him a long while ago by his uncle Featherstone. His father always allowed him to keep a horse, Mr. Vincy's own habits making him regard this as a reasonable demand even for a son who was rather exasperating. This horse, then, was Fred's property, and in his anxiety to meet the imminent bill he determined to sacrifice a possession without which life would certainly be worth little. He made the resolution with a sense of heroism, heroism forced on him by the dread of breaking his word to Mr. Garth by his love for Mary, and awe of her opinion. He would start for Houndsley Horse Fair, which was to be held the next morning, and simply sell his horse, bringing back the money by coach? Well, the horse would hardly fetch more than thirty pounds, and there was no knowing what might happen. It would be folly to balk himself of luck beforehand. It was a hundred to one that some good chance would fall in his way. The longer he thought of it, the less possible it seemed that he should not have a good chance, and the less reasonable that he should not equip himself with the powder and shot for bringing it down. He would ride to Hounsley with Bainbridge, and with Horrock the vet, and without asking them anything expressly, he should virtually get the benefit of their opinion. Before he set out, Fred got the eighty pounds from his mother. 
Most of those who saw Fred riding out of Middlemarch in company with Bainbridge and Horrock, on his way, of course, to Hounsley Horse Fair, thought that young Vincy was pleasure-seeking as usual, but for an unwanted consciousness of grave matters on hand, he himself would have had a sense of dissipation, and of doing what might be expected of a gay young fellow. Considering that Fred was not at all coarse, that he rather looked down on the manners and speech of young men who had not been to the university, and that he had written stanzas as pastoral and unvoluptuous as his flute-playing, his attraction towards Bainbridge and Horrock was an interesting fact which even the love of horseflesh would not wholly account for, without that mysterious influence of naming which determinates so much of mortal choice. Under any other name than pleasure, the society of Messrs. Bainbridge and Horrock must certainly have been regarded as monotonous, and to arrive with them at Hounsley on a drizzling afternoon, to get down at the Red Lion on a street shaded with coal-dust, and dine in a room furnished with a dirt-enameled map of the county, a bad portrait of an anonymous horse in a stable, His Majesty George the Fourth with legs and cravat, and various leaden spittoons, might have seemed a hard business, but for the sustaining power of nomenclature which determined that the pursuit of these things was gay. In Mr. Horrock there was certainly an apparent unfathomableness which offered to play to the imagination. Costume, at a glance, gave him a thrilling association with horses, enough to specify the hat-brim which took the slightest upward angle just to escape the suspicion of bending downwards, and nature had given him a face which by dint of Mongolian eyes and a nose, mouth, and chin seeming to follow his hat-brim in a moderate inclination upwards, gave the effect of a subdued, unchangeable, sceptical smile, of all expressions the most tyrannous over a susceptible mind, and, when accompanied by adequate silence, likely to create the reputation of an invincible understanding, an infinite fund of humour, too dry to flow, and probably in a state of immovable crust, and a critical judgment which, if you could ever be fortunate enough to know it, would be the thing and no other. It is a physiognomy seen in all vocations, but perhaps it has never been more powerful over the youth of England than in a judge of horses. Mr. Horrock, at a question from Fred about his horse's fetlock, turned sideways in his saddle, and watched the horse's action for the space of three minutes, then turned forward, twitched his own bridle, and remained silent with a profile neither more nor less sceptical than it had been. The part thus played in dialogue by Mr. Horrock was terribly effective. A mixture of passions was excited in Fred, a mad desire to thrash Horrock's opinion into utterance, restrained by anxiety to retain the advantage of his friendship. There was always the chance that Horrock might say something quite invaluable at the right moment. Mr. Bainbridge had more open manners, and appeared to give forth his ideas without economy. He was loud, robust, and was sometimes spoken of as being given to indulgence, chiefly in swearing, drinking, and beating his wife. Some people who had lost by him called him a vicious man, but he regarded horse-stealing as the finest of the arts, and might have argued plausibly 
that it had nothing to do with morality. He was undeniably a prosperous man, bore his drinking better than others bore their moderation, and, on the whole, flourished like the green bay-tree. But his range of conversation was limited, and, like the fine old tune, Drops of Brandy, gave you after a while a sense of returning upon itself in a way that might make weak heads dizzy. But a slight infusion of Mr. Bainbridge was felt to give tone and character to several circles in Middlemarch, and he was a distinguished figure in the bar and billiard-room at the Green Dragon. He knew some anecdotes about the heroes of the turf, and various clever tricks of marquises and viscounts, which seemed to prove that blood asserted its preeminence even among blacklegs. But the minute retentiveness of his memory was chiefly shown about the horses he had himself bought and sold, the number of miles they would trot you in no time without turning a hair being, after the lapse of years, still a subject of passionate asseveration, in which he would assist the imagination of his hearers by solemnly swearing that they never saw anything like it. In short, Mr. Bainbridge was a man of pleasure and a gay companion. Fred was subtle, and did not tell his friends that he was going to Houndsley bent on selling his horse. He wished to get indirectly at their genuine opinion of its value, not being aware that a genuine opinion was the last thing likely to be extracted from such eminent critics. It was not Mr. Bainbridge's weakness to be a gratuitous flatterer. He had never before been so much struck with the fact that this unfortunate bay was a roarer to a degree which required the roundest word for perdition to give you any idea of it. "'You made a bad hand at swapping when you went to anybody but me, Vincy. Why, you never threw your leg across a finer horse than that chestnut, and you gave him for this brute. If you set him cantering, he goes on like twenty sawyers. I never heard but one worse roarer in my life, and that was a roan. It belonged to Pegwell, the corn-factor. He used to drive him in his gig seven years ago, and he wanted me to take him, but I said, "'Thank you, Peg.' I don't deal in wind instruments. That's what I said. It went round of the country, that joke did. But what the hell! The horse was a penny trumpet to that roar of yours. Why, you said just now his was worse than mine, said Fred, more irritable than usual. I said a lie, then, said Mr. Bainbridge, emphatically. There wasn't a penny to choose between em. Fred spurred his horse, and they trotted on a little way. When they slackened again, Mr. Bainbridge said, "'Not but what the roan was a better trotter than yours.' "'I'm quite satisfied with his paces, I know,' said Fred, who required all the consciousness of being in gay company to support him. "'I say his trot is an uncommonly clean one, eh, Horrock?' Mr. Horrock looked before him with as complete a neutrality as if he had been a portrait by a great master." Fred gave up the fallacious hope of getting a genuine opinion, but on reflection he saw that Bainbridge's depreciation and Horrock's silence were both virtually encouraging, and indicated that they thought better of the horse than they chose to say. That very evening, indeed before the fair had set in, Fred thought he saw a favorable opening for disposing advantageously of his horse, but an opening which made him congratulate himself on his foresight in bringing with him his eighty pounds. 
a young farmer, acquainted with Mr. Bainbridge, came into the Red Lion and entered into conversation about parting with the hunter, which he introduced at once as Diamond, implying that it was a public character. For himself he only wanted a useful hack, which would draw upon occasion, being about to marry and to give up hunting. The hunter was in a friend's stable at some little distance. There was still time for gentlemen to see it before dark. The friend's stable had to be reached through a back street where you might as easily have been poisoned without expensive drugs as in any grim street of that unsanitary period. Fred was not fortified against disgust by brandy, as his companions were, but the hope of having at last seen the horse that would enable him to make money was exhilarating enough to lead him over the same ground again the first thing in the morning. He felt sure that if he did not come to a bargain with the farmer, Bainbridge would, for the stress of circumstances, Fred felt, was sharpening his acuteness and endowing him with all the constructive power of suspicion. Bainbridge had run down Diamond in a way that he never would have done, the horse being a friend's, if he had not thought of buying it. Everyone who looked at the animal, even Horrock, was evidently impressed with its merit. To get all the advantage of being with men of this sort, you must know how to draw your inferences, and not be a spoon who takes things literally. The color of the horse was a dappled gray, and Fred happened to know that Lord Medlicote's man was on the lookout for just such a horse. After all his running down, Bainbridge let it out in the course of the evening, when the farmer was absent, that he had seen worse horses go for eighty pounds. Of course he contradicted himself twenty times over, but when you know what is likely to be true, you can test a man's admissions." and Fred could not but reckon his own judgment of a horse as worth something. The farmer had paused over Fred's respectable, though broken-winded steed, long enough to show that he thought it worth consideration, and it seemed probable that he would take it, with five and twenty pounds in addition, as the equivalent of diamond. In that case, Fred, when he had parted with his new horse for at least eighty pounds, would be fifty-five pounds in the pocket by the transaction, and would have a hundred and thirty-five pounds towards meeting the bill, so that the deficit temporarily thrown on Mr. Garth would at the utmost be twenty-five pounds. By the time he was hurrying on his clothes in the morning, he saw so clearly the importance of not losing this rare chance, that if Bainbridge and Horrock had both dissuaded him, he would not have been deluded into a direct interpretation of their purpose. He would have been aware that those deep hands held something else than a young fellow's interest. With regard to horses, distrust was your only clue. But skepticism, as we know, can never be thoroughly applied, else life would come to a standstill. Something we must believe in and do, and whatever that something may be called, is virtually our own judgment, even when it seems like the most slavish reliance on another. Fred believed in the excellence of his bargain, and even before the fair had well set in, had got possession of the dappled gray, at the price of his old horse and thirty pounds in addition, only five pounds more than he had expected to give. But he felt a little worried and wearied, perhaps with mental debate, and without waiting for the further gaieties of the horse fair, he set out alone on his fourteen miles' journey meaning to take it very quietly and keep his horse fresh. 
End of chapter 23